Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me, Bill Arnold. I'm so glad this hour is going to be so interesting. We're going to talk about faith and science, and I bet you're going to have questions. So the best thing to do is once you uh, get to your phone or your uh, laptop is to send me a text question uh, to 877-933-2484. I love uh, Psalms chapter 8 when it says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place... What is mankind that you are mindful of him, human beings that you care for them? It seems like it's either faith in God or faith in science. And are those two compatible or incompatible? We're going to talk about that today. Very hot topic. And my guest is uh, Brian DeVries. He's from Search Ministries here in the Twin Cities. He is a physicist, an engineer, and a metrologist. Don't even ask me what that is. I think it has something to do with weights and measures. But I'll ask Brian just to double check. But uh, again, we're going to be talking about faith and science today. And I think you're going to love this. So get questions ready and text them over whenever you feel like it to 877-933-2484. Let me take a little uh, break and I'll bring on Brian. Hello, I'm Franklin Graham. Maybe your heart has been gripped by fear as millions of others have because of this coronavirus pandemic. But I want you to know that God loves you. He made you. He created you. He knows everything about your life. You don't need to be afraid. Jesus said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. If you've never invited Jesus Christ into your heart, if you've never trusted him as your savior, you can pray right now to do that. Just simply pray this prayer. God, I'm a sinner. I'm sorry for my sins. I believe Jesus Christ is your son. And I want to invite him to come into my heart, into my life. I'm willing to trust him as my savior and follow him as my Lord. And I pray this in Jesus name. If you prayed that prayer, we'd love to talk with you. Call 1-888-388-2683, 1-888-388-2683, or visit billygram.org. Welcome back to the show. My guest, Brian DeVries, along with Bill Mast, uh, are in the Search uh, Ministries office right here in the Twin Cities. It's a spectacular ministry, and it gets people engaged in conversation at all levels about faith. And it's it's a, a brilliant ministry, and I'm glad that I have him today for a full hour. We're going to talk about faith and science. Brian, welcome. Good to be here. Thank you. I just refreshed... Uh, my listeners' memories about your interesting and varied background as a physicist, an engineer, and a metrologist. <laughs> well, I starting I started out loving sciences and, and right away got into physics um, and found that I just couldn't separate myself from it. Um, some some of my earliest experimental experiences had to do with uh, NMR, nuclear magnetic resonance, some nuclear physics things, uh, but then got into uh, material sciences with semiconductors, 
did some graduate work with Arizona State University with uh, surface physics and uh, some early experimentation with metallic growth on silicon and um, found myself enjoying the application to products and, and making them work with uh, with the sciences. So it's always been a thrill for me to, to see how things work and see that they work in our favor. So did you have real friends or imaginary friends? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, if you've ever seen The Big Bang Theory, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I've never watched that without thinking of specific friends that I had. Oh, that's when I was so funny. Up. That's it, so it, funny. Uh, it's an amazing thing. Yeah. And uh, tell me what a metrologist is. Is it again, did I get that right about weights and measures? Yeah, that's really good. Uh, metrology is the is the study uh, and science of measurement, and a metrologist is one that typically works to improve methods of testing and measures with their accuracy. So, for a lot of industries, actually, there's government regulation on how you control the precision of your measurements and monitor them during production and manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And remind uh, listeners about search ministries. Well. Search ministries really captured my heart when I had I had spent a summer at Oxford studying with uh, RZIN Ministries, and uh, I got back and they have this ministry to the workplace, which is fantastic, and, and I had been familiar with, but I just never really thought that uh, they would be a fit for me until I had gotten back from this experience in Oxford and realized I had just spent all this time training uh, in apologetics, and that's exactly what these folks do. And they were looking to try and reach out to uh, folks in the workplace. It just so happened I had just been in the workplace for roughly the majority of my life. Yeah. So, at, one po- at one point, you were uh, doing uh, some test driving for Toyota or Nissan? <laughs> for that- Nissan. Yeah, it was, it was a funny thing. I had just finished my graduate degree. Uh, and polishing up the details there. And uh, I was in Arizona needing to earn some cash, and I had a friend that uh, had a position at the Test Track Proving Grounds in Arizona. I thought, wouldn't that be cool? And (laughs) I I know I'm going, driving with my hair on fire on on an oval, and it was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, it sounds like a blast. You know, it's interesting how many speeding tickets have been given out over 100 miles an hour in Los Angeles because people have never been able to drive quickly on California freeways because they're always so packed. (laughs) They finally get an opportunity to go fast, and they do, and they get pulled over. Uh, They've given out like 2,000 speeding tickets, over 100. It's just an incredible number. Anyway, we're way off topic now, so let's get back. I know that there is uh, a lot of people today that talk about uh, well, you're either going to have faith in God, or I'm more of a science guy. But it's they talk in a way that they those two are incompatible. Yeah, you know, I was doing research at Brookhaven National Laboratory long ago, and I was challenged by this colleague um, when I had come back from a church service because we were living in these cottages on the property, and I said, you know. I just come back from a church service and he's like, how is it possible that you can believe in God and believe in science? And what's extraordinary is that 83% of the Nobel prize winners in the hard sciences, physics, chemistry, medicine, actually have a faith in God. Mm. Now, clearly that means that faith in God is not incompatible with doing good science. I mean, so it's a, it's a misnomer really. Yeah. Isn't mathematics and science just the handwriting of God? When you, when you I mean, look at it? Been my, yeah, that's been my personal position, that science is not an alternative to God, but it is God's testimony about himself. So 
So when we look at these things, and that's what really drove me as a scientist, was uh, one idea of admiration. So everything that I was looking at and discovering in the sciences, I was looking at it as though it was how God had done something and the genius of the way that things were structured and organized. And, and actually, the very fact that things had order and the amount of order that they had. Um, the fine-tuning of the universe, all these things really were overwhelming to me. So it was an exciting business to be in as a believer who was a scientist. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have an encounter with somebody who is a scientist, and they're going to look at you and say, you know, Brian, you're nuts. I don't know how you can have faith in in God. I mean, because I'm I'm a smart scientist. Um, How do you crack that egg? You know, oftentimes... um, the barrier that people have in faith and science is due to an underlying cause that can be emotional. And they may have had some experience with, hey, you know, I I prayed to God to save my grandma and nothing mm-hmm. happened. And so I've got this, got this thing where you can't, you know, you can't erase this emotional hurt that I had when I was thinking I was trusting God for something and I was disappointed or, um, or maybe it's the, the way that they view their God. Um, the uh, common thing that seems to underlie a lot of these things is either the emotional piece or some misinformation pieces. And in the misinformation piece, um, a lot of the assumption is a a worldview that's behind how they view faith. Uh, For example, I actually had a, a, a friend that asked for some material on the various faiths of the world. And he said, well, I want to be able to review it so I can pick the one that I most agree with. Mm. And what's what's happening there is the underlying assumption is that God is not real. It's a human construct. It's like picking out curtains. You know, we're, we're picking out the one that we like the most, the one that's most agreeable to us. Um, but really, um, the paradigm that needs to be, be entertained is, well, what if God is not a human construct? What if it's real? What if it's a undeniable, unresistible force of creation, design, and awe? What if that was the case? And what if we started at least in those cases with the what ifs? And that the what if tends to ease you into some of the discussions and hypotheticals and gets you past what people set in their minds uh, as against faith. And it's that paradigm that they operate out of that they need to try and play with different points of view in order to get them past that barrier. Part of the trouble of this smorgasbord of religions that you sort of go through the line and pick what you like, um, you're going to have a, a real problem uh, because you're going you're to have your own perception of what you believe to be true, and then you're going to judge religions based on what agrees with you and what doesn't, and you're going to construct a God of your own making and your own liking. You're not going to have a truth uh, or you're going to have uh, the real God of the Scripture. It's a modern concept that we hear this now, and and I think, I don't know who to pin it on. Maybe I could even pin it on Oprah for making it popular, (laughs) Um, you know, speaking to your truth, you know, sharing your truth. And this is a real tragic perspective because I can imagine a day when when it gets to be so ingrained and so advanced in our society when somebody is saying, look, I just don't believe that that bus is right there that's coming towards me. It's not my truth. Uh, You know, even for people that claim that they have their individual truths, they still all lock their doors at night. Right. There are, there are things that are undeniably true that we just can't get around. Mm-hmm. And that has to really cause us to, to rethink this 
um, this notion of truth. There are objective truths and there are opinions. Um, I'm not sure what your flavor of ice cream, but it may be true that you don't like a particular flavor of ice cream. Maybe it's butter brickle or something. Uh, but uh, that's a very different statement um, than you know saying that the atomic mass of, of carbon is a certain value. These are not somebody's opinions. Uh, Brian, let me take a little break. Uh, Brian DeVries is my guest. We're talking about faith and science today. If you have a question, we'd love to hear it. what it is. You can send me a text to 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. Brian DeVries is my guest. He is uh, going to be hosting a online Zoom call coming up the next couple of days, tomorrow at noon and uh, Thursday at 7 p.m. You can be a part of. It's a very interesting topic, Brian. We're talking about uh, faith and science. And I, I'm always amused when, when people, you know, say I'm, I'm kind of more the intellectual type. I'm, I, I like science, and, you know, and I think for myself. And I love that line because I've never really understood that as if people have their own original thoughts. I always think that there are existing beliefs, and you choose which ones you're going to align yourself with. Who has, like, fresh original thoughts ever? to point to some level of arrogance should we oh, yeah. think that we are the original generator of certain thoughts and beliefs right. for sure. Um, it, I think what's astounding is, you know, when you, you think you've got this great idea and it seems so deflating when you find it already published in literature or you already find it recorded in a book somewhere else. Um, it's, uh, it's really quite something when you hear that for sure. Yeah. So, you know, when you have people that, that think that they're, they're going to come up with their own conclusions and I, I always go, well, you're going to end up down Sin Road, um, and that's, there's nothing new down that road. Oh, for sure. Um, and it's, it's astounding, actually, in the science debate, when you really peel back the onion, people's opposition to sciences. There's been some uh, notable uh, philosophers uh, that have said and admitted that, hey, look, I get that this makes sense or that it's pragmatic in some level uh, to have this Christian faith, but I really don't want to think about it because it would mean I would have to stop doing some of the things that I'm doing. And I, I like my drug sex and all the other um, you know, deviant behaviors I'm engaged right. in. So let yeah. me, uh, let me alone with this. I don't want to, I don't want to entertain an accountability of any form. But there's a measure of honesty. I, it's, it's, you know, you would think it wouldn't come up, uh, but periodically I've been shocked by the honest uh, confessions that, that, uh, that amount to those. Yeah. All right, Brian, let's talk about materialists, materialists. That's kind of hard to say. Uh, unless it can be proven to me, I'm not interested. You know, but I sound like a crank. The, <laughs> no, no, not at all. In fact, you hear it all the time. Yeah. Uh, if I, if I can't see it, I can't believe it. Right. And I think one of the things that people fail to realize about the sciences and and the nature of science itself is you rarely prove anything completely beyond any doubt for any reason. Um, and any kind of experiment, you have a limited number of parameters you can control and test. And so you may have been able to validate these conditions 
and this experimental routine and, and this configuration. But there's almost an, an, an indefinite number of, of uh, configurations you could test and, and push to the envelope. I mean, in your, in, your, what, in your elementary math class, when you've got a train traveling at 60 miles an hour east, and you got another train traveling at 40 miles in the opposite direction, you know, how long before they meet kind of things. Those are generic uh, equations that we thought that we were using because we understood the science of how, you know, velocity works and how objects move on the earth. And somebody decided, well, what if we made it go really fast? What if we made it go really, really fast? And all of a sudden the physics start changing. And when we've tested it to the limits, uh, we don't have these simple conclusions. Now we have to add um, some Einstein level effects that go with relativity that show us that, hey, this, this boundary that we pushed on is no longer true. So even in the scientific field, um, not everything is clearly uh, knowable to an absolute degree. They say that mathematics is the only thing that is absolutely provable. Hmm. All right. So when you start to have people with their scientific mind start challenging you with questions like, all right, this uh, Methuselah guy, come on, lived to be a thousand, almost a thousand. What's up with that? You know? And all of this stuff that uh, people getting, you know, pregnant at a hundred. Well, how do you explain that? I mean, there, there's a scientific mind that says you've got to make better sense of this. Well, let's walk it back to even before that. Let's start at the very first parts of Genesis, right? And usually um, I run into this at least once during a group discussion that they point out, hey, you know, six days creation, come on. We see rocks that are older than that. Right. I mean, I've, got, I've got leftovers in the fridge that are older. Exactly. Right? And how is it that you can claim any kind of integrity with this? And I think there's a couple things that are immediately lost on people. And one is that it's not universally accepted that we have a 24-hour day translation for the word yom, which is the word for day there. So there's, there's an awe in the Christian community about what's the appropriate translation. Is it really 24 hours? Is it not 24 hours? What's with the fact that the same word is also translated epic or age? So there is that perspective given from the from the religious community, for starters. And number two, in the scientific community, um, if we are advancing uh, our look at the um, sciences when we talk about cosmology, and uh, and you saw this even illustrated in Interstellar, the movie, um, and curiously enough, they hired a Nobel uh, Prize-winning physicist to help them with some of the science present in the movie. Not Clearly, all of it was not uh, on the level, but... Um, what, we're, what we saw there was that time is not constant, and this throws a huge wrench in a lot of the conversations that we've got. In fact, uh, there was a, a Jewish physicist, Gerald Schroeder, that did the math showing that, hey, look, I can get a condition where there's gravitational variations to such an extent that where you experience 16, uh, 15, 14 billion years, somewhere in that range in one area. And over here, that same event would take place in six days. It's mm. not hard to calculate those differences. Now, that really throws things into a tizzy. So it's not as cut and dried as you think. There's a lot of possibilities out there, both from the scientific perspective and from the Christian perspective. So um, I think, you know, charging in with your pre-made conclusions that this is an immediate discrediting event by, by making these statements in the Christian community 
is is uh, pretty dangerous without knowing exactly what's beside it. Yeah, what, what is your reaction when you when you see on the news? You know, they they did carbon dating and they found this rock was uh, you know forty six million BC. I'm going, yeah. Where do you get one of these carbon dating testing kits? Is that a Home Depot thing or what? Yeah, well, for starters, there's definite limits to the carbon dating. Um, the idea that um, they're using radiological dating in order to say how old things are is based on the fact that you have this guess at how much of something there was at first, and it decays by a nuclear process into a different state. And so we know by how much of what was previously there and what is now there, we can make guesses because we know the rates at which these things decay. Well, here's your your big issue is um, you have to make some pretty big assumptions about what used to be there when you're going to use this method for dating. And the other problem is when you're getting to these big dates like this, carbon dating just isn't useful. Um, you, you, you don't have a, you have certain length of your rulers and the ruler just doesn't work that well for um, things that are that big because you're getting into too small a sample sizes and those kinds of things. So for starters, you need to know the limitations of the testing method. Um, and certainly uh, there's some huge limitations in accuracy. And that being one of my previous jobs was the accuracy of measurement. It was particularly sensitive to those kinds of claims and accusations where people are not thinking about the plus or minus that needs to come after the number that you have that you've written down for accuracy. That's really interesting. Um, a question came in from uh, Terry. He said, the one scientific principle that cemented my faith is the astronomy concept called the anthropic principle. This is the idea that the entire universe is finely tuned for life, human life, in fact, and there are hundreds of examples where this is shown to be true. Isn't this science-based proof of God? Yeah, I always hesitate to use proof um, because in the sciences, what you're doing is you're using observations to validate an hypothesis. Um, but when we talk about it in religious terms, what you've done is you've shown that there's an objective basis for your conclusion that I have faith in this. And in fact, um, our faith is only as good as what we place it in. And when we see uh, the scientifically derived discoveries pointing to order and design, it adds to the basis for which we would put our faith in something like this. And absolutely, I would be in 100% agreement with, with him that all of these constants that are so finely tuned for life to exist. In fact, there's a, there's a great book that I love that really illustrates something even a step further, which is not only does life seem to be fine-tuned for existence, but our planet, the planet Earth, seems to illustrate that the the same conditions that are required for life also maximize our ability to discover the world around us and discover the scientific principles around us. So think about that. It's almost as if you have a God that's a designer that is interested in revealing himself and placed us in a place that would be most likely to happen. Yeah, well, need to take a little break. Brian DeVries is my guest. If you have a question about science and faith, let, let us know what it is. You can send the text to 877 877- 933-2484. Again, 877-93-FAITH. We'll be right back.
All right, we're back with Brian DeVries. Um, he is uh, got an interesting background for sure. And um, engineer, physicist, metrologist, and not to mention all around great guy. He's uh, also a part of Search Ministries. And uh, he and Bill Mast are very busy doing that year round. And it's a very powerful ministry, of which I've been involved with for a long time. So. Um, Let's get into some of the heavies now, Brian, if you're okay with that. Let's talk about evolution. That gets to be a big topic for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, that's usually um, one of the other things that we hear right away. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't don't believe in in God. I believe in evolution. Right. And and first of all, you have to start with definition. What do you mean by uh, evolution? Are you talking about microevolution or adaptation? Are you talking about macroevolution? Were you changing species to species? And um, I, our recent scientific progress in the biological sciences has really put a lot of pressure on the traditional view of Darwinian evolution. And I think one of my favorite um, authors on some of the recent discoveries has actually been Douglas Axe. Now, he is a a biologist uh, and has a publication. He had a paper published in the Journal of Molecular Biology explaining some of the probabilities of what happens in what is typically viewed as the traditional process for Darwinian evolution. You've got supposedly a mutation in DNA that ultimately results in a new protein or process in an organism. What's astounding to me is that now that we have the mechanics down and we understand the, the combinatorials of how many different processes are possible in the various places here, is to get from that DNA mutation, given that we also have repair processes to prevent and, and repair those mutations. But let's say we have one of those mutations occur and we get a resulting protein that's functional. His calculations said it's one chance in 10 to the 77th power. Mm that would allow that to happen um, successfully. And that's just one. This is one protein. And you got to do that more than once. And it's got to be in the positive direction, not the negative direction for an effect. And to put that in context, I mean, that's a, such a big number. If, if, Bill, if you were to hide one atom, not a planet, not a sun, not a star, not a piece of dust, one atom in the Milky Way galaxy, and I had to go find it, and I found it on my first try, that would be more likely than a probability event of one chance in 10 to the 77th power. Wow. That's crazy. I mean, that, it's, it's, it's amazing what we now know about what happens inside the cell, the way that things work and things function. It is creating some real challenges for the evolutionary process view that used to be there. There's been a number of meetings around the country of, of uh, not necessarily believing uh, scientists, but biologists in general that are struggling with, you know, how do we go forward with this explanation that we have in uh, in evolution? Because it's becoming a problem. All right. You're talking over my head just a little bit, but that's okay. Most of the interesting facts about science I learned came off the back of the Count Chocula box. But that's uh, just, you know, breakfast cereal. They always have interesting facts on the, on the back of breakfast cereal boxes. But let's go back to the idea of a designer where you, how do you have this conversation with anybody that 
it, when they see an incredible design that they just write it off, that it just came out of some primor- primordial soup? You know, um, when, when people dug up tablets in the Egyptian desert and saw that there were hieroglyphics on them, what didn't happen is that somebody stood up and said, hey, look, you know, here's a random arrangement of pigments in a design that looks really pretty on these tablets. Isn't it amazing how this randomly occurred in the middle of the desert, how long it would have taken to happen? People don't do that because they recognize intelligence is what generates information. And just for example, the the contrast here with the SETI project that uh, a lot of people may have remembered the Carl Sagan series of Cosmos. And Carl Sagan was one of the uh, original submitters of the proposal to the government for the search for extraterrestrial life, the SETI project, or extraterrestrial intelligence. And he was asked about how he would would recognize that there was life out there. And he said, well, I'd, I'd recognize it because it would be patterned and ordered information, because information can't come from a random source. You don't go from random uh, disorder to order. That's a violation of the second law of thermodynamics. And that's, to, to put second law of thermodynamics practically, if you're, a, if you're a mom of a three-year-old, you don't come home one day and you see that all the toys have been put away spontaneously. <laughs> I mean, it, takes a lot of, it takes a lot of energy to, to put those back into the places where they're supposed to be. But we're sitting on, on DNA, perhaps the most complete instruction set of information ever. And to not recognize that as information exhibiting an intelligent source is really quite extraordinary when you're looking for the very same thing coming from out, outside of our Earth and, and uh, you know, wishing upon a star in a sense. So when you are trying to have uh, discussions about um, the beauty of of life and the fact that somehow we all want to love and be loved. Where'd that come from? Um, I presume you're talking about the, from the non-believing position. Yes. They would say, well, these are just, these are just um, evidences that enhance our survival, right? These are just, okay. Is that what they would say? These are just what we yeah. do to enhance our survival. Right. The, the nature of a loving perspective is that it enhances or provides our survival. But um, go further. I mean, we see people sacrifice themselves for right. other people out of love. And this certainly is not a survival of the fittest in that form. Um, y- you have to ask yourself, where do things like love come from and where would you expect them to come from if we were only originating from a random process? And why is there even anything that's logical at all? And why would we expect there to be logical outcomes at all? Um, the the real confusion in the sciences is that, uh, and there's this there's this new push forward towards scientism, um, scientism believing that science will explain everything, and it's the only way to truth, which curiously is a fallacy similar to the gods of gaps theory that was happening in the in the Christian communities explaining everything. Um, uh, as coming from God, but not only. I mean, you've got moms again with their three-year-olds wanting them to be quiet and just saying God made it that way, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but this uh, this idea that you've you've got these um, ordered uh, results just don't make sense. That they would come from 
something that is is random. So we really have to ask ourselves in this in this confusion about science versus uh, non-science, where you 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 think this is um, this is something that is structured and it's explaining everything. What it's not explaining is the concept of purpose, meaning, or design. It is explaining what or how. And I've used the example before of a Chevy 350 engine. You can have a mechanic that is this fantastic mechanic that knows everything about the engine, can take it apart beginning to end, even make some replacement parts if he had to. But it would be really weird if that mechanic turned around and said to you, hey, you know, because I understand how this works, I don't believe that there's a General Motors. And I think that's what we've gotten to is this confusion over uh, the capacity of these uh, groups to be able to answer. We've really missed the the difference between an understanding of what purpose, meaning, and design. Mm-hmm. So as we talk about uh, things, the crazy things like UFOs and, and uh, you know, there's been sightings in the sky and, and you know, people ab- aboard, uh, you know, Air Force jets have saw stuff that they thought, we can't explain that. And, of course, everybody starts to go, is there is there life on other planets? And are we going to encounter aliens? How do you answer that? Yeah, the... <laughs> You're, you're hitting all the, the top hitters for the questions that, that come up on the topic. Um, for starters, let me emphasize the, the definition of the UFO. That means unidentified flying object, and it, that's all it is. It's unidentified. Okay. And, then, and the speculation goes from there, and it runs wild, right? Uh, but the reason that so many people that are in the non-believing science community want there to be life elsewhere is because it validates the evolutionary process likelihood. It gives an example of, of uh, how and why this can occur. They're looking for something that they haven't found on Earth, which is this likelihood and this demonstration of the evolutionary process occurring. If they can find something else outside of our Earth that has resulted in the same thing we saw on Earth, it is much less special, it is much less uh, of something that we should be surprised by and something that we can attribute to the random variations and processes which are supposedly behind the evolutionary formation of, uh, of our current life forms. So that's, I think, really the driving principle behind of what a lot of what we see and, and why you see in the science, uh, non-believing science community this uh, never-dying fascination for these pieces of life. But to this connection with other worlds and extraterrestrials, um, I think a lot of physicists and cosmologists realize, hey, look, and it was illustrated well uh, in the Interstellar movie. I don't mean to keep coming back to that, but it was illustrated well that vastness of space means that there's almost an insurmountable gap between us and the neighboring uh, galaxies. It is just so far away that time becomes a problem for us to even encounter each other. That even if something like that could occur, the likelihood of life having uh, given birth and, and sending off uh, in maturity some communication to some other life form, we're talking uh, you know, a tremendous number of light years in between even the, the closest stars. The fact that this other life form would still be existing or even know anything about that information that was sent prior just is is mind-boggling. Uh, 
I think it's a failure to grasp just how vast space is and how unfriendly it is and uh, the practicalities of probabilities here that really come into play. Brian, uh, tell our listeners about the Zoom conference you've got coming tomorrow afternoon and Thursday evening uh, for those who want to maybe dig a little bit deeper on this. So the Zoom conference that we've got tomorrow and Thursday is designed to be a a quick set of uh, information to help prime the pump, to get people asking questions, uh, to get people uh, challenging thoughts that they may have as assumptions in their head as non-believers. So this is one of those kinds of things where uh, both a believer can be encouraged by the discussion and a non-believer can actually feel safe Mm, in that environment asking questions, because that's really something we're short on, and that's something that search tends to try and focus on. We need to have a venue and an environment where it's safe to ask a question. Uh, I was stunned to hear we were having a conversation uh, with Lee Strobel the other day on, on Zoom conference with uh, with our search staff, and he pointed out that there's a, a large percentage of people that do not feel safe asking general faith questions in the church. Really? And, in the church? Yeah, in wow. the church. Uh, and so let alone you know somebody that was a non-believer that's got questions. Um, I was talking to a young man who said, you know, hey, he didn't, you know, he had some serious doubts about the resurrection. He says, it's not like I can walk into a church and ask this question without being branded a heretic. He says, but I can walk into a search uh, discussion, and I can raise these questions from beginning to end and not be chastised. And that's what we want to offer is someplace where people feel safe and uh, free to ask the challenging questions they've always wondered, you know, the boogeyman under their bed spiritually, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, they, uh, that they want to try and, and uh, talk about. So we offer this first, a presentation of, of short facts and information to try and prime the pump and to get some questions going where people are going to actually engage in some thoughtful discussions. And we'll try and do a follow-up the following week as well uh, for those that are interested in continuing the conversations. Yeah, it's a fantastic forum. Let listeners know how they could uh, participate in that. Is there a way that they can do that? There is. Um, and our Facebook page, uh, Search Ministries-Twin Cities, uh, we have a event that you can sign up there. It'll take you to a Zoom registration, and it will automatically get you logged in and set up for a unique link that you can follow to join the conversation Wednesday nice. and Thursday. Nice. And it's a conversation is tomorrow at noon and a Thursday night at 7 p.m. Central Time. Do I have that right? Great. Terrific. You got right. it. Brian DeVries is my guest. We'll take a little break. We'll be right back. the show. Brian DeVries is my guest. I'm talking about uh, faith and science. Are they compatible, incompatible? Got some good questions coming in. I've got a great question coming up on my producer line from Rebecca, who produces the show. 
Rebecca, take it away. Thanks, Bill. Yeah. Uh, Brian, I was wondering, we had just had a discussion with Becky Pippert the other day on evangelism and, and making it easy and an everyday kind of thing. And I realized maybe some of the reasons that we don't talk about faith as openly is because we're concerned about the way the discussion is going to go. Uh, so one of the things I love about what you guys do at Search Ministries is you're making it an, an easy discussion, and it's very, very friendly. So maybe speak to that if you would and how we can keep these discussions to be respectful and casual just we're regular people talking about these big questions it doesn't have to be combative or defensive or a a prove to me kind of argument setting yeah absolutely um and i that's actually one of the things that really attracted me to be part of search ministries is we have this focus on um, conversation making sure that it's not that threatening, overbearing conversation. Um, And I think one of the key tools that I see used at Search so often is simply asking questions. Tell me why you believe what you believe. And what is so fascinating about asking that question is how many times you hear somebody say, you know, I'm not really sure. I, I don't know why I believe this. And the idea that something so significant as your eternal existence and destiny would go unexamined. It's really extraordinary. Just to get the conversation going, tell me about what you think. Tell me why you think it. And so often, people are just encouraged. I, we had um, an individual that was sharing with somebody that was a definite non-believer. And this individual stopped and he said, you know, I've never had a Christian even ask me what I thought before. Wow. And they are now continuing an ongoing dialogue and discussing what they, uh, what they believe. I think one of the the great things about um, the search method that we've used is understanding that it is God that changes somebody's heart, not us. And we just love to be there for part of the process, and two, that it is a process. Your conversation is not likely going to be the end-all, be-all of this person's eternal significance and salvation. They have a process that God's taking them through to believe, and that takes so much pressure off as well. Brian, do you think Christians come across as, you need to hear something I'm going to tell you? <laughs> well, absolutely. I mean, that's the great, the great funny part about evangelism, is that both non-believers and believers have a fear over the same thing, and that is sharing the gospel. One doesn't want to hear it, the other one is afraid <laughs> to share it, right? And... The uh, that statement that nobody cares about what you know unless they know that you care is so true. That is true. And until you can really develop a relationship with someone, you have not earned the right to be heard. And you need to develop that relationship with somebody else. You need to be in a position where it is a natural progression of your relationship to have that conversation about significant things. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's astounding at how when you have a, uh, have a relationship, these things become more possible, more open. And so being intentional about developing relationships with people that have different faith backgrounds or different paradigms of belief, um, that's, I think that's an essential part of being a Christian and helping us to reach those that are non-believers. All right, here's a question from Jeff. Ask Brian if he still gets excited about talking about the Shroud of Turin and how the very <laughs> fact that it has an image on it is unexplainable and unreproducible, a tremendous testimony to the resurrection of the God-man, Jesus Christ. 
Uh, I mean, it's possible. I've I've seen documentaries that shown how it cannot be true. I've seen documentaries that have shown how it had to be true. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it, it's unfortunate when you deal with in the science realm that so often it comes down to, well, my scientist is better than your scientist. Right. Right. And and that's really too bad. I think apart from the physical evidences that we have that are out there, you've got other things that are even more significant in terms of bearing testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, you have a uh, a historical record of individuals that observed Jesus as a real person, right? You've got non-biblical sources that testified to his presence and his and his life and death here on earth. And now and then you've got these individuals that were totally behind him, totally sold out, and then totally devastated because their leader had been killed and they're hiding. And they're fearful, even denying his their relationship with him. And something transformed them into this group of individuals that were willing to risk their life and die for that belief. Now, what in the world would possess them to do that? If you're looking at the biblical record of the resurrection, you're seeing if, if this was faked, you would never do this. You've got this woman as the first person that Jesus encounters. Well, women at the time weren't credible uh, law witnesses in a case. Why would you do that? Um, why would you have a set of scriptures uh, testify to something like that. There's all sorts of things like this that are significantly powerful in testifying to the authenticity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, whether or not you have a shroud of terrain or not. Mm-hmm. So, Brian, science, now, is that subject to interpretation and bias? I mean, it's not infallible, right? No, it's not infallible. In fact, um, one of the things I often cite is a Wall Street Journal article that came out in 2011 uh, where they had uh, a study put on by Bayer because Bayer was losing their shirt in trying to create medications they can introduce into the marketplace uh, from uh, published literature and, and journal articles. But nearly two-thirds of their attempts to reproduce the results from these journals failed. I mean, that's a devastating fact. I mean, these are peer-reviewed journal articles, the bedrock of the scientific community. And we're seeing uh, a huge percentage of these things that are not producible, and only 21% of the results were reproducible. And that should tell us that there is some fallibility there, whether it is, is you know, hurry up and pressure to publish, or you've, you've not done a good job with metrology, or, or your, your methods are poor, maybe even you've, you, you really need to get that, that next grant, and so you sweeten the data a little bit. Who knows? You, know, you don't want to cast dispersions on anybody. But the bottom line is, just because you wear a lab coat, we have this image in our mind that it somehow gives us infallible uh, objectivity. And certainly our paradigms will um, influence the way that we interpret the data in front of us. Mm-hmm. And because Christian theology and so many of the, of the things in Scripture that we celebrate as believers um, rely upon supernatural occurrences, do you find people that say, I'm a scientific guy and you're asking me to come to this faith and then you're going to ask me to believe a lot of this stuff. Yeah, I, I think that's where we've really undersold 
the strength of the objective evidence that we can actually put our faith in that does have some scientific background to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the idea that everything that I'm putting my trust in here is uh, completely ethereal. It's not tangible. Uh, and that's not the case. Um, the, the general revelation of God through what he has been made, um, illustrated in the first chapter of Romans, is really extraordinary. Um, and that is giving us an example of the kind of thing that's out there that is not just imagination or thought or, or words. These are things that have been made. In fact, the very invisible qualities that we can't see have been illustrated in the things that can be seen. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we've really not – and obviously I have a bias as a scientist, but I love that part of my faith that has an objective basis for creation. Yeah. Brian, tell our listeners again this Zoom conference uh, meeting, which is tomorrow at noon for one hour. It's uh, Central Time, and then Thursday at 7 if they want to get involved in a search ministries-type exchange. Yeah, it's these kinds of events where we really are interested in believers bringing non-believers to the event. Mm -hmm. And the reason that we do these kinds of things is we want you as a person with a relationship with a non-believer to come to an event and then leave, and you can carry on the discussion after it's over. Yeah. So they go to uh, search-mn on Facebook? Search Ministries-Twin Cities. Search Ministries-Twin Cities on Facebook. Brian, thanks for doing the show. It was really great to talk to you. You bet. You bet. Brian DeVries has been my guest. That wraps up our day. It's been a great day. Thanks to all my guests, uh, Rob Bluey and Greg Gilbert and Brian DeVries. Thank you for listening and supporting Faith Radio. I'm still in the gushy mode. You know I'm going to be this way for a while. Um, If you missed any of today's show and want to start over, go to MyFaithRadio.com. It's all going to be on the podcast tonight. Have a great night. As you lay your head on the pillow, just know that God is working out his great plan in your life. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.